What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's Tuesday, May 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Researchers are constantly working on new vaccine delivery methods for COVID and are hoping that nasal vaccines could be better at preventing transmission and infection. Several candidates are in the works and are in early clinical trials, but the hope is that it could work better by taking hold in mucous membranes where the virus enters the body. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for how your next booster could be taken up the nose. Next, many people took advantage of programs that paused federal student loan payments and interest and saved money or put it into other financial priorities. But there were also those that remained diligent and continued to make those payments as they could. The result for them was being able to pay off completely or a huge chunk of their federal loans. For those that did pay them off, now it's about rebuilding new savings since this debt is now gone. Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, less than six months ago, Netflix launched a website called Tadum that was supposed to build more fandom for their properties. Billed as a place to offer news about shows, in-depth interviews, and other exclusives, the site has had to lay off employees already. Current and former employees say that it suffered from a lack of direction and strategy. Mia Sato, reporter at The Verge, joins us for what happened at Tadem. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And some of them might be uh, a spray, and they're even talking about like a mouth. There's been talk about a mouthwash and or, or an oral version. Same ideas, all being tested, um, but we're still probably a good year out from seeing any of them in in common usage. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, what the next generation of vaccines may be. A lot of people, a lot of researchers and scientists are looking to nasal vaccines. So it wouldn't be the traditional shot that you get in your arm. This would be something uh, delivered through your nose. And uh, they're hoping that this kind of different delivery system could help at preventing transmission and infection a little bit better than the shots. There's a lot of interesting things, especially the way that they're developing these things. The, some of them are using eggs <laughs> with bird viruses yep. to to kind of uh, uh, let the vaccines develop. You know, so there's a lot of hope behind this. There are a lot of these things right. are in very early stages right now, some very early clinical trials. But Karen, tell us a little bit more about it. Yes. Yeah, so basically the idea is the virus gets in through your nose. It gets stuck to the mucus in your nose and your throat and enters your, your cells that way. Um, and so if you could put a barrier at that point, 
that maybe we could stop not only severe disease, which the current vaccines do, but also inf- any infection. So that's the, the general idea of a nasal vaccine to stop it where, where it enters the body. As you mentioned, they're trying all sorts of different delivery methods. They may all be the same. One may be better than the other. It's too soon to tell. The chicken-egg approach is actually what we use for flu vaccines. They are traditionally developed uh, within chicken eggs every year. It's part of the reason there's often a mismatch between the flu virus that's circulating that year and the vaccine because it takes a long time to produce enough eggs uh, to produce enough vaccines. So they have to be made about six months ahead of time. They have to guess what strain is going to be circulating in six months. Uh, It's a little different, hopefully, with COVID. The variants don't change as much as they do with the flu. So hopefully it would be a closer match. Now, tell me a little bit more about the delivery method, only because you hear something going up your nose, you might think it's like a spray or something, but that's not really what this is. It's literally like them putting drops through your nose. And yeah, they you, drip you, it in general. Yeah, uh, you spoke your head back. And they drip it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. you spoke to one guy and, uh, you know, he had to do that, right? They'll drip it in your nose. And he said it felt like yeah. you could feel it going down your throat. It didn't hurt or anything. It just felt kind of weird. Yeah, he said it was kind of gross. But, you know, it's two seconds of grossness for hopefully protection. And some of them might be uh, a spray. And they're even talking about like a mouth. There's been talk about a mouthwash and or, or an oral version. Same ideas, all being tested, um, but we're still probably a good year out from seeing any of them in, in common usage. Now, one of the interesting things about this is uh, obviously we, you know, we've already had the mRNA vaccines here in the United States. When they're looking yep. at the development of these things, they're really looking at it as more of a, of a booster shot. We're kind of so far in the game already. This is really exactly. going to be what the next phase of it could be. And as you mentioned, hopefully to provide more protection right in the nose as these are kind of respiratory diseases. That's really right. where the, the big aim is as, as a booster. Right. It's twofold um, in countries that haven't had any vaccine at all. Some of these might be good first line vaccines. But for those of us who already have two or three or more shots in our arms, this might help protect us from getting infected at all. At least that's the hope. And so uh, how many of these do we have right now that are currently in development? There are actually dozens. Uh, when I did a search of clinicaltrials.gov, which is the government's repository of these things, there were more than 90 hits I got on the search terms. So I don't know exactly how many are really viable and, and in clinical trials, but there are many, many being developed. There is one. It's called the Codagenics vaccine. So this one's interesting right. because this one, uh, you know, there was a lot of concerns throughout the pandemic when the vaccines were coming out that it was using the coronavirus, the live virus in the vaccine. That wasn't true for the mRNA right. ones. But with this right. one, this does have the virus in it. Uh, but scientists are actually hopeful that because you're using the entire virus, it could provide uh, better protection. How does that work out? So theoretically, what we're getting from the mRNA vaccines and some of the others is just the spike protein. The, it's a protein that's on the surface of the coronavirus. If you've seen a picture of the virus and it has this little like crown of stuff on the outside, that's the spike protein. So that's what we're getting from the, the vaccines we've had to date. A live virus would be the whole virus. It's live attenuated. It means it's been stretched, essentially. It's been altered so that it's not dangerous anymore, but it does include the whole virus. And so our body would learn to react to the whole virus and might develop kind of a a broader spectrum of response rather than just to that single S protein, the spike protein. As we mentioned, these are all uh, very early stages. Do we have any uh, numbers on efficacy, how well they're working so far? We don't. What we have are safe. They they appear to be very safe, which is great. 
but they're still in such early trials that there haven't been any head-to-heads against existing vaccines or even against against the virus. So we don't really know their effectiveness yet. That's what the next six months to a year will tell us. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting notion, right? There's a lot of people that are averse to getting shots because of the needles. Exactly. You know, so that's one concern here. And, 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 you know, going through the nose, not so invasive, really. I mean, everybody's gotten a nose swab by now. So it could be a, an interesting approach for this as we right. move on to the next phases of the pandemic. And as the gentleman who you mentioned before, who I quoted, who who's in the trial, he hadn't gotten a vaccine, not at all because he's anti-vax, but just because he felt like he was 33 years old. He's healthy. He's unlikely to get sick from COVID. But what he didn't want was to pass it to his parents or to somebody else. So for him, he wasn't that interested in, in an mRNA vaccine, but he might be interested in a vaccine that prevented him from passing this, this virus on. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you us. so much. Appreciate it. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Every commission, every raise put that toward her loans and then took the added step of moving in with a family member to reduce her housing costs. So she went from living alone to sharing rent with one person and was able to to that way wipe her loans out entirely. Joining us now is Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about a good story when it comes to student debt loans. You know, when the pandemic hit in an attempt to provide relief to a lot of students, payments for federal loans, payments and interest were were suspended. You didn't have to make the payments. Uh, You weren't going to receive any penalties on interest or anything like that. I know a lot of people took advantage of that and, you know, put other financial priorities first, especially with what was happening during the pandemic. Others, though, did kind of uh, stick to it. They tried to keep paying their debt off. Some either paid it off entirely or just took a big chunk out of it. It was a small number, though. 1.2% of them kept paying that off. But Julia, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, you know, one thing that was important for me when I was reporting the piece is that 1.2% sounds so small. That's almost half a million people. So, I mean, keep in mind how many student loan borrowers we have in the country. Even half a million people being able to do this, I thought was was pretty significant in and of itself. Something that immediately stuck out to me too was how many of these people continued making payments and then also made even bigger payments. 
Yeah, and I mean, it really helped them out. The freeze that uh, on these payments is still going on until the end of August. Borrowers overall skipped about $200 billion in payments. So on the other side of things, people really took advantage of it. So I know you spoke to a lot of people that did make the payments and all. Uh, how did they fare? What did they do? Because it's not all, uh, as easy as some may think, too. I mean, they really still had to make the adjustments to keep making those payments. Absolutely. You know, I spoke with a wide range of people for this story, and I think that some of them found that they were sort of naturally able to pay off their loans with the pause in interest. They were able to naturally just take the money that they were paying and and reach the end of their payment cycle. Other people were able to take the money that they were saving as a result of the shutdown. I mean, as you probably remember, we were at the highest savings rate that we've seen in this country since World War II. They were able to take all of that money that they weren't spending on travel, weren't spending on going out and put that toward their loans. And I also spoke with a woman who, once she realized she was so close to paying off her loans, She took every bonus she got at her job, you know, every commission, every raise, put that toward her loans and then took the added step of moving in with a family member to reduce her housing costs. So she went from living alone to sharing rent with one person and was able to to that way wipe her loans out entirely. Yeah. I mean, obviously not everybody has the resources and can do something like that. But man, was that smart. Right. And then, you know, she was able to wipe that whole thing out. I mean, I think it was like 40, some $40,000 that she she owed at that point, which is great. She said it was tantalizing. You know, she was so close that she thought, okay, this will be hard for a little bit, but then I know I'll be able to get to the other side of it. And for her, it made all the difference. Yeah, it was funny. I think in the story, she turned to her cousin and said, hey, I just paid off all my student debt. And she said, I know. you know, yay me. <laughs> so I, I know. It's one of those moments, you know, she said this in the story too, but it's one of those moments where there's no sort of moment. She paid it off and she said there was no confetti. You know, you don't have a baby shower. You don't have a register. Like when you're getting married, it's something just between you and the computer. And so her cousin went and got her a, uh, a little mini Reese's cup, which I thought was so <laughs> sweet. You know, one of the other things throughout this too that we're finding out is, of student loan borrowers also have some type of additional debt, whether it's a credit card or auto loan or something like that. So even uh, with the freeze and and the interest, especially, I'm assuming even just the the interest not accruing, a lot of people were able to set their financial priorities straight and, and, you know, put other things first and pay that other, the private loans off too. Totally, totally. Prioritizing the private loans is something that I heard from quite a few people that while their federal loans were on pause, while they could take advantage of the pause in interest, while that payment wasn't coming out every month, they just immediately turned their their attention to the private student loans, some of which sometimes had higher interest rates and said, okay, this is getting off my plate. I'm eliminating this now. And now for a lot of these people that they, they were able to pay this stuff off, you know, they're caught up now. It's not over for them just yet. You know, right now for a lot of them, it's about rebuilding those savings, kind of the next step, trying to just get back on that same footing, especially if they, you know, exhausted a lot of what savings they had to to pay off all the debt. Absolutely. I've interviewed people for so many different stories who say, this was my chance to build a safety net. This was my chance to finally put some money in savings, have some money to touch in case of an emergency. And I think the last few years really emphasized how necessary that is for people. You know, so many people said, I didn't have an emergency fund, then COVID came, then the subsequent economic crisis came, and I thought, this has to be my priority for next time. Julia Carpenter, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Get ready for to do. Hi. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hi. Bonjour. Hello. Hola. Hello to do. 
To doom. And what does that mean? They use my voice for that noise. To doom. Joining us now is Mia Sato, reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Mia. My pleasure. Well, let's talk about an interesting thing that's uh, going on recently at Netflix. They're having a pretty rough go. They announced that for the first quarter, they lost many, many subscribers. They think that is something that will be continuing as uh, a lot of people are changing their viewing habits again. But one of the things that they launched less than six months ago was kind of this fan site. Uh, You know, everybody knows when you load up Netflix, it goes, ta-dum, you know, that's kind of the intro sound for it. So they made a, a website that you know was called Tadum, and it was basically going to be this place to get uh, advanced stories about you know uh, things that might have gotten renewed, interviews with stars from Netflix properties, all sorts of different stuff. Well, they announced many layoffs last week. We're starting to hear a little bit more uh, from writers and journalists that they brought on board that that might have been let go. Some that are still there. And they just said it, you know, they just kind of lacked direction. And they see that uh, a lot of problems stemmed from there. So Mia, tell us a little bit about it. So to dumb, to doom, I've heard both. Um, you know, it's sort of, it was a part of the story. A writer joked to me that they didn't even know how exactly it was pronounced. To dumb is a sort of like a blog for Netflix content. It's run by Netflix. The writers are employed by Netflix. And the idea was sort of, it's, the first stop for fans of Netflix content. You can read, you know, when the new season of your favorite show is dropping, you can see trailers, you can check out Q&As with the stars. Um, It was supposed to be like the go-to fan site. And uh, last week, I believe, or the week before, um, layoffs were announced at Tadam. And this was the first that a lot of people were hearing of the site. So that immediately sort of raised eyebrows. And I think there were around a dozen, maybe a few, a couple fewer uh, layoffs at Tadam. And it was part of a larger round of layoffs at Netflix in the marketing department. Around 25 people lost their jobs. And it really raised a lot of questions about what folks were doing at the site in the around, you know, five, six months since it had launched. Um, Because many people didn't even know about it, you know, and writers and editors that were employed there that still work there described an environment where they were really confused about what they were doing. They weren't sure what their goals were for the site were, what metrics uh, higher ups were tracking. So it's definitely led to, I think, more questions than people had um, about the site to begin with. You know, I actually had a coworker that I worked with for some time leave where we were working to go work on this project. And, uh, you know, he's like, I can't really talk about it. This is kind of basically what it is. I believe he's still there. I, I, I haven't checked. I have to follow up. But, you know, at the time I was like, oh, this, this is going to be cool. So but now to hear that they're, you know, it, it's going through this turmoil is a little, uh, you know, a little concerning, I guess. And even, you know, from some of the former staff and people that you spoke to and this, I can definitely see it would be a problem, you know, when you're trying to create the infrastructure for something like this. They said that they were getting scooped on other stories from other outlets as well. I mean, they weren't meant to be a direct competitor to some of these entertainment sites, but When you're told as a journalist, as a writer, hey, we're going to give you guys exclusives, and then you take that away, you know, that puts you uh, behind the eight ball now. It's sort of baffling, I think, for writers. And, you know, as the reporter doing the story, I was also really surprised to hear that Tadam writers would be promised exclusive, promised times with 
talent and then Netflix couldn't swing it for them. And, you know, that suggests that there was a real disconnect in what the site was supposed to be doing and what actually, what strings were pulled ahead of time to like prepare the writers to be able to do that job. It really seems like they weren't really given the things that they were promised. And I should note too, that a lot of the people that were hired to write for Tadam were experienced and high-profile entertainment and culture writers. There were some sort of early career people, but a lot of these writers, you know, you probably have read their writing before about Netflix shows. So they know how media works. They know how interviews work. They know how scoops work. They're used to talking to talent. And at times they would sort of just watch as other outlets would get interviews that, you know, even Netflix's in-house fan blog couldn't get, which is very confusing. For Netflix, it was about creating these fandoms, really building more about the personal properties that, that, that they were putting out there. And, you know, it's uh, just kind of even in this website is something that other people have said about Netflix already, too. When you cancel shows that are starting to build these fandoms and you cancel them all too soon, whether they're not hitting internal metrics, they're too expensive, whatever the case may be, this is a criticism that's been leveled at Netflix before. And I think it's important to put it sort of in the broader context of like, you know, we call it the streaming wars for a reason. It's a war. These streaming platforms are fighting for subscribers, fighting for IP, for shows to stay or, you know, pulling shows to and shows going elsewhere. But then Netflix sort of has this problem of like they're known to cancel programming that maybe it wasn't like a smash hit, but there was a very dedicated fan base. Netflix and other streaming platforms are quite secretive about the metrics that they use to track viewer behavior, view hours, how they measure those things. And Netflix is sort of known to look really closely at metrics and make decisions based on that. And so I think, you know, in a, a way to frame this story of the layoffs is think of Tadam as another Netflix program, right? What numbers were marketing higher ups thinking about and looking at and how much of that, you know, were writers really privy to? How much did they know about like what numbers they wanted from them, if any? You know, it's possible that Netflix changed their mind halfway through. There are a lot of sort of suggestions that writers were promised they would do a certain job and then they got on the job and that was not the case. Mia Sato, reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work.